Great. Thanks, guys, for a second run. It's a great, great, great song. Like, man, lyrically, that's one of the best you guys uh, have done in a while, so thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, take that for what, what it's worth, I guess, but uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, guys, good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, thanks for being uh, here and, and joining us for a Sunday of worship. Uh, we are in Acts right now, the book of Acts in the New Testament. If uh, you want to turn there in a Bible you've got or a phone app, if you're brand new, we always put the, the main uh, section of Scripture on screen, so don't feel like you have to turn there or anything, but um, feel free to do that, though, if you want to get some context or just kind of read from your own Bible, that'd be great. Uh, but Acts is a book about Jesus, uh, like every book of the Bible is, and particularly it's a book about the birth of Jesus' church. That's kind of the unique aspect to Acts. Acts refers to the Acts of uh, the, the Apostles or the Acts, really, of Jesus, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through His church and bringing the gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection to more people uh, throughout the Roman Empire. So it actually ends in Rome. We'll get there in December. So we have a long way to go. We'll spend all of 2019 still in this book. But we are a third of the way through. We're in Acts 9 today, 1 to 19a. So kind of a weird paragraph break there, just the way it kind of works out. But uh, it's the first half of 19. But uh, we will finish finish it next week. But the conversion of Saul today, uh, Peter was talking about about this a little bit before that last song, but we'll, we'll fill it out. The conversion of Saul and us, so seeing our conversion story in, uh, in his. So um, remember Acts, though, uh, going back to Acts for just a second. Acts tells us the, uh, it's a history book, so it tells us the history of what happened, but it also tells us the, the theology of the how, the theology of the why, and the theology of the who, which then continually references us back to Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so today is a pretty significant shift uh, here with Saul. Uh, if, in fact, if it's kind of a weird hypothetical, but if someone said, you know, you could put one paragraph break or one outline break somewhere in the book, this is probably where you'd put it. Uh, everything before this kind of fits into a, a bit of a, a category. And then here, Saul converts, and once he does, um, the focus shifts to him and what God is doing through him the, the rest of the book. And so it's a pretty significant break outline-wise. So um, it's, it's a big, it's a really exciting passage. Uh, it's significant for us. A Christian or not today, actually, for those of you who are Christians, this will show you what happened to you when you were saved. This is what was happening behind the, the scenes or the curtains. If you're not yet, this, this shows you a lot about what Christianity really is and what it's not. Uh, and we always try to show that in every sermon, but this just really kind of just does it, you know, without much effort, really. So, um, so here we go. Uh, Acts 9, 1 to 19a. We'll start here in verse 1, um, and then I'm going to read it in full, and we'll come back. And, and uh, a few asides to begin, some things just to kind of point to. And then we'll, uh, we'll come back to the meat of this. So, so verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, and hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, so a few asides to start with here. Some of this is context, some of it's theology. Um, But first, this is, uh, for clarity, this is the same Saul who oversaw the killing of Stephen, a Christian man, in chapter 7. So back in 758, it said, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was during uh, the martyrdom of Stephen. Then in 8.1, right after that, Saul approved of their killing of him, to him being Stephen again. And then in Acts 3, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, Christian men and women, and put them in prison. All right, so you've got a glimpse in terms of like who, he, who this guy is and what he's been doing. This is the same guy then who, this is his background. And I think Peter's mentioning this, but he has zeal. He thinks he has the, like a rightly placed zeal for God. He thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's, he's totally off. Uh, but this is the same guy. And so now we, we learn more about him and, and how he changes, how he converts here uh, by Christ's grace. All right, second, Saul is also known as Paul, and we'll see him called that later in Acts at various points. Those names are interchangeable. So contrary to the popular belief that his name was officially changed to Paul after his conversion, that's not true. But there is something still to the notion that we see movement here from Saul to his like other name, who's also known you know, by, by Paul, and so we see him called that a little bit later on, because that's really kind of what happens kind of on a conversion basis for him and for all of us, that, that he moves from Saul to a name now that means small. Paul means small or humble. That's what the gospel does to us. It, we get small underneath it. We're, we're loved deeply, but we see that we kind of decrease in Jesus' love and power and grace get, get big. And he's going to learn that here kind of by experience and also by theology, and he's going to write about these things later. And, uh, we'll, and we'll see some of that even, even today. Uh, but, but this is the same guy who wrote, we talk about Paul and Paul's writings here. Or Paul said this or that to the Romans or the Corinthians. This is the guy. So this is the guy we mean. And, and this is the guy who wrote half of the New Testament. 13 of the 27 books were written by this guy. And so in God's great wisdom, he desired a former Christian murderer to be one of the biggest advocates for Christianity who's ever lived and a prolific uh, New Testament book writer. All right, then third, the third aside is just to comment briefly on this thing Jesus says. The first thing that Jesus declares to Saul on the road to Damascus is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so put yourself in Saul's shoes. He's probably, he's probably like, what? You know, who are you? And I'm not persecuting you, and you've got the wrong guy. And then Jesus is like, no, you are persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. Which gets us then to the one of the more beautiful but mystical aspects to Christianity that there is, and that is that Jesus is one with his church. He's one with us. He's one with his people 
by the Spirit. And so to attack the church is to attack Jesus directly. To be kind to the church is to be kind to Jesus directly. There are huge ramifications here uh, for what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of a church and what it means to love the church. And I'm just going to kind of let that hang out there a little bit for you guys today so we can focus on other things because there's a lot going on here in today's passage. But I, I wanted to comment briefly on it and just encourage you to think about it. Take it home and mull over it and talk to your spouse or your community groups or your friends about what the implications for that is if the church really is the body of Christ and, and here if Jesus really meant this. that And Saul did this unbeknownst to him, right? Like he wasn't actually thinking that he was doing this. But to attack Saul or to attack Jesus was to actually attack, attack Christians was to attack Christ himself, the, the Son of God. And even for some of you who aren't Christians yet, you know, if, if you've ever been kind to a Christian before or befriended a Christian before on, on any level, you've actually, with this theology in mind, you've actually befriended Christ. So maybe you're closer to being a Christian than you think. And the God of the Bible maybe is kinder and more approachable than you think. And yet the way to approach him, or rather the way he approaches us, is always through his son's shed blood. And so we'll talk more about that as we go today. All right, so with those three things said, uh, let's talk about three big theological takeaways that teach us more about the gospel. It's been a, a, the framework we've been using now for a few weeks. And so this passage, too, kind of caters well uh, to this, this approach. So we'll, we'll do it. Three big theological things we're learning uh, that the passage shows us that teach us more about the good news the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that benefits us. The first is what I'm going to call the conversion paradigm. So kind of the question here is, what's prescriptive in the passage and what's descriptive? Those are words we've been using in the series, if you're brand new today, uh, words we've been using uh, to kind of talk about what is unchangeable, what's uh, unique. So what's kind of just described as happening kind of this, in this punctiliar uh, once and, and for all kind of way or a unique way to this uh, context and culture and what's prescriptive or what's saying this always happens for Christians or this always happens when we hear the gospel. This always happens when the gospel is preached. That'd be more of a prescriptive idea or a paradigmatic idea. Uh, the descriptive side would just kind of be like, well, this is just describing. There's still theology in that. It's still good. It's just uh, we have to be careful when we um, put ourselves too much in these stories because we just don't have the same exact story as Saul here. And so we'll start on the descriptive side a little bit more on that, just to acknowledge that there are descriptive things happening here. And, and again, that just means that, that what took place here with Saul at one significant point in Saul's life is somewhat unique. And it's not paradigmatic when it comes to every Christian's conversion story. In other words, few Christians see a light visibly. Few are blinded by that light. And, and few even hear Jesus' voice audibly. And it might be hard for us to empathize with Paul here and his story, too. Like, we might think, I've never wanted to kill Christians literally, so you might think, that's not my story. Um, but remember, part of this it has to do, then, with the idea that this is theology more than history. It is history. It's completely true. But it's theology more than that. And so it's not ultimately always directly about us and our story as much as it's about Christ, as much as it's about Luke is writing this in a way to tell us something about Jesus that then becomes about us because it's for us. Not so much about us, but, but for us. And aspects of this are important to see so we're not kind of crushed by that. And even asking questions like, am I a Christian? I didn't see a light. Am I a Christian? I, I didn't hear Jesus' voice when, when I became a Christian. Was it genuine? Was it legit? 
Those are legitimate questions we would ask if we thought that, that Acts was completely and totally and in every way about us. And, and it is. We're part of this story, obviously. It's history, but more than that, it's about theology. And so on this descriptive side, it's also about theology, but it's also okay to say that's not exactly how it worked for, for me when I converted. All right, so with that said, though, that's the descriptive side, the, the non-paradigmatic side. With that said, there are things that are paradigmatic. There are things that we can look at and say, that's what happened to Saul, that's what happened to me when I became a Christian, or that's what happened to my friend, or people in my church, or this is what always happens. This is the way Jesus always works behind uh, the, the curtain, so to speak, of a conversion narrative of any size, shape, or color. All right, and I have three things today. If you want to follow along, it's on that sermon insert, but just three things we'll look at with this first piece of today's sermon on the conversion paradigm, and that is Saul is saved unsuspectingly. In other words, from uh, Acts 9.3, Luke is careful to say that it was suddenly it happened, or suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and it was the light of Christ itself that, that caught Saul off guard and the people he was traveling with, knocked him on his butt, and, and basically everything kind of transpired from there. So now this is important because if salvation could be calculated it would suggest that it could be worked for. It, it would suggest that we could plan for it, maybe, or that it could be more determined or quantified. But Jesus says in John 3, 8, that the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is, or it's the same with everyone who is saved, everyone who becomes a Christian or is born or reborn or recreated by the Holy Spirit of God. So this is referring to conversion. Everyone who is saved or born afresh of the Spirit or remade or risen from the dead, it's the same. The Spirit blows and turns and twists and it's like the wind. It's not easily quantifiable or measurable. And so what Jesus is saying here then, and we're seeing this in Acts, we're hearing it in John 3, we're seeing it in Acts 9. But what Jesus is saying is the Spirit's work is more like, God's work is more like the wind that we can't predict rather than an unwavering, predictable, ticking clock. To say that salvation came out of nowhere is to say that it didn't come from us, nor is it based on us, but on God's sudden grace. Does that make sense? Crucial to see this. Uh, the unsuspecting, sudden nature of salvation, because suddenness implies grace, not our works, but on the, on the basis of God's blowing and moving and, and choice, really. And so and that leads me into the second one, which is Saul is saved individually. So he's saved suddenly and unsuspectingly, but he's also saved on this kind of individual basis. So this is, if, you, if you're keeping track and kind of keeping score here, this is the second story in a row in Acts, so going back to last week, the second story in a row where Jesus has singled out people to be saved by name. Last week was the eunuch, remember, where he identified that person, specifically told Philip, go specifically over there to that particular person on the chariot and tell them about me. Remember that? And here, it's, it's the same thing, where Saul is called out to by name, right? Obviously, it's happening, but I mean, the fact that Saul's name is being called to by Jesus, it's almost heightened even more than last week. It's the second story in a row where, where we're seeing this, this take place. And we'll see it more in Acts before it's over. Apparently, there were other men here who were uh, traveling with Saul who didn't have the same kind of conversion experience right there. Maybe they did later. We don't know. 
but here they, they weren't becoming Christians. They weren't converting with him. And so um, we have this idea, again, kind of underlined even more, that Saul is being kind of picked out of this crowd um, to be saved. Now, you know, I realize that opens up a can of worms theologically, or maybe it is for you in your mind. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. But you might be thinking, wait a minute. Uh, that seems odd or not fair or maybe not that loving or uh, overly selective of, of God. And that, those are great questions, uh, kind of uh, bunny trails if you're thinking that, great questions. But it's too big to talk about today. Uh, so I'm going to just uh, bypass here a little bit. But I will, I will say this, though, for today. Hopefully it will suffice is that the point of this doctrine or teaching or theme when it comes up in the Bible is always 100% of the time, even if it's not direct, though it usually is, almost 100% of the time, if it's almost, almost always direct, is joy. So the point is our happiness. The point is for us to stop and say, like with Acts 9 in mind in particular, if he did this here for this murderer, could he do it for me? Are these kinds of acts of the Holy Spirit still at work today in Minneapolis? Do they happen around us? And of course the answer is yes. You know, you and I, if you're a Christian here today, you are chosen because you are loved. Love and choice go together always. And so, um, you know, I, I say, I've said before, I think from up here, but if I, if I uh, went home and told Aletha, my wife, that, that I have good news for her because... I'm actually more loving now because I decided to love all the women of the world as much as her. That would not go over well. So the point is, love is by definition selective. It has to be. It has to be. But by experience we know this. Not just by theology do we know this, but by experience. So it shouldn't shock us or even offend us to see that God is selectively loving people. Like he has a singular bride, the church, and so he's at work um, moving towards people and softening people and uh, revealing himself to certain people. Now, again, there's a lot of questions that come up in, in light of that. I realize theologically that are great questions, uh, but don't bury the lead. Don't miss the main point, which is our joy and happiness in the fact that, wow, how could we lose what God has chosen to give on this, this level? So that's the second thing. Saul is saved individually, and the point of that idea is joy. Uh, always biblically, 100% of the time, it is happiness and joy and, and worship and security in our salvation. The, the third thing is Saul is saved undeservedly. So one question to ask here to help us see this is, what is Saul literally on his way to do when he's saved? What's he literally on the, on the way to do? What's he on the road to Damascus to do? What's he going to this town to do? He's not only actively murdering and imprisoning Christians and tearing apart families, but he's also actively attacking God. And he's not thinking this, but Jesus helps us here when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's actually attacking and persecuting and making suffer, in this mystical way, the Son of God himself. And so he's unworthy of salvation simply based off his actions here alone. He's like already like all of us, but this is like, you know, Wednesday morning. This is like, you know, he's already, he's already unworthy of salvation just based off of what he's doing here in these few moments on his way to, to this town. Also important here is the fact that um, scales fell from his eyes. And I want to talk about this for a second, kind of skipping down to the end of the passage for a second here too. But scales fell from his eyes. Remember Ananias goes, lays hands on his eyes, 
and it says something like scales fell from his eyes. I think that's important theologically and symbolically, and it tells us a lot about Saul and us, but Saul and who he is and exactly what's happening here when Saul is being healed slash saved. And so let me just ask you guys rhetorically, why scales? Why is this even mentioned? What does scales make you think of? But why are scales mentioned at all if he could have just said, like Luke could have just said, all of a sudden he had his sight back, right? Like all of a sudden, miraculously, Saul could see again. Like wouldn't that be enough? In a lot of cases in the Bible, it is. In a lot of places, it just says, even when Jesus heals people, it just says, and they could see again, right? It's more matter of fact in terms of how it talks about blindness moving towards sight. Or maybe it's blurriness for a minute when Jesus heals, but then all of a sudden they can see perfectly. But here, this is a unique thing. It says something like scales fell, fell from his eyes. And so when you think about that thematically, symbolically, what are scales and what are they associated with and what does it make you think of? So what I think Luke is doing here uh, intentionally by describing Saul's conversion experience and healing this way is he is using snake and reptile and dragon language in referring to Saul to give us the image of Saul now shedding scales or becoming less dragon-like. It's kind of like Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You guys read that Narnia book before? Uh, Eustace becomes a dragon. It's kind of like that. You know, he's becoming less dragon-like. He's he's turning back into a a, a creature, like a a son of God, you know, here. And so, and this fits really well, by the way, too, with, with other New Testament theology, and actually outside the New Testament, too, in the Old Testament as well, but but also in the New Testament, where in Romans uh, 3, it says, and actually Paul, this is the same guy who wrote Romans 3, so it's interesting that Paul had this scale-like experience, and he kind of writes in these terms, uh, no coincidence, but he says in Romans 3, when he's describing humanity, and he's describing humanity's need for a deliverer and for salvation, he says, this is what all humanity is like. No one does good, no one seeks for God, Then he describes us in snake-like, scale-like language. The poison of asps or the poison of vipers is on their lips. And Jesus talks in these terms as well. Jesus says to people, you serpents, you brood or children or hatchlings of vipers. So you are all children. We are all children of of snakes or vipers. We are are serpent-like in how we talk. We are serpent-like in how we slither and deceive and lie. We are really, ultimately, children or the brood of the ultimate snake or dragon in the Bible, which we read about and learn about in the third chapter of the entire Bible in Genesis 3, who is the devil. The ultimate snake, the ultimate dragon, the ultimate one of scales. And yet, here's the interesting thing about Saul and about and the powerful thing, really, about the gospel is that in the face of of a persecuted, crucified Jesus, what happens? The scales fall off at his command. In the face of a persecuted, crucified Jesus who suffered for us, and at the call of his command to be healed, scales fall off of his eyes, and I think also his soul and his body. And he's, he, he changed, he's changed, and he changes us. Jesus' sufferings, this is a great picture of the gospel, Jesus' sufferings descale us. Colossians 1 says in verses 13 and 14, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of snake-like darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son 
So we, we, we move from being snakes to being sons and daughters in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which is huge to see that last clause. We'll come back to that. But the basis on which Christ does all of this is that right there. The forgiveness of sins, redemption, that's the basis off of which he's able to appear this way. It's huge to see that. All right, so again, there's a lot to mull over here, and this is certainly its own sermon, uh, but there's more I want to get to. What I want us to do, though, especially if you're a Christian, if you're not here today, you can learn a lot about the gospel by way of this too, so I, and I hope you see that. But if you're a Christian, to at least take this with you, the, the, these types of thoughts. Like Saul, I wasn't on my way to do something good when Jesus saved me. Think about that. Like Saul, this is paradigmatic and unchanging. This is prescriptive. Like Saul, I wasn't on my way to do something good when Jesus saved me. So salvation is not an award for good behavior, but rather an interruption of our hellbound race. That's what the gospel is. It's while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. Which again, Paul, the guy who was descaled here and who had this experience, writes this not just because it's good theology and true, because it was his own experience. While I was in the act of murdering God's sons and daughters, he said, you're mine. I love you. Get up. Go to this city. I have a new identity for you and a new calling on your life. I've chosen you in love. Isn't that incredible? See, this, this is our story as well. And if it's true for him, it can be for us. And it is for us if we believe. And so Paul, who wrote so much about this, the whole Bible's about this, but Paul, who wrote so much about this idea of it being about grace, the undeserved merit or unfair kindness from God. This is what we're seeing here, right? Paul didn't deserve, Saul didn't deserve this. When he wrote so much about this, like in Romans, for example, grace, not the works of our hands. It's all that theology is birthed out of, out of the Old Testament, out of Jesus' ministry, but also in what the Spirit's inspiring in his mind to write, but also out of his experience. And so um, it's, it's encouraging to do, and actually helpful sometimes when you guys read some of Paul's writings, is to remember his conversion story and actually look and think, man, I wonder if he's writing that based off of what Jesus just said right here and what he did and, and the idea of scales and, and the idea of um, laying on of hands and all these cool themes, some of which... We, we will get to today. I already have. All right, so that's the first piece, the conversion paradigm. Uh, the second theological thing that, that, we, um, that we learn that tells us about the gospel is related, and that's the idea of offense. And so to feel the weight of and the sheer offense at what's happening here, uh, it, it helps to think, how would you feel if the person who killed your spouse or your best friend or your child, or even just a peer at, at your church, the person who killed those people was saved and forgiven by Jesus Christ. Like, how would that make you feel? How do you think Stephen's wife felt when she got the news about this guy who, like, oversaw uh, her husband's murder? What if God showed your greatest enemy kindness and restraint more than you ever thought was fair? Like, how would that make you feel? And the answer is probably offended, right? Or at least a bit bothered, or at least a bit, mm, man, really? That one? And so he, here's the offense in Acts 8. 
Jesus is showing the oppressor kindness, not just the victims. Jesus is showing the oppressor kindness and forgiveness, not just the victims. Saul is a textbook oppressor, right? Get a definition like right in front of you or a dictionary, you look at a picture of Saul. Textbook oppressor. Jesus is like interrupting that and also kind of exposing, condemning, or or bringing like a a conviction into his heart, but then also showing him that I am here to save you and I'm the answer and I've died for that oppression. Believe in me. That's essentially what's happening here. And we're seeing this a lot in Acts already. We're going to see it even more. Just these questions like, really him? He's saved or her or they're saved too or a Samaritan, really? A Gentile, a non-Jew, a eunuch, cripples, a murderer of Christians? In chapter 10, Peter will have his own moment like this. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. But it's kind of like Jonah in the Old Testament saying, the Ninevites, really? They're the worst of people. I knew you were going to show them kindness, God. That's why I didn't want to go, you always show kindness to bad people. It's kind of like his angst in chapter 4 and throughout. Or the Pharisees getting upset at Jesus for eating with prostitutes and sinners. And they're kind of like, dude, I'm here. I know the Bible like the back of my hand. I've memorized it. I do good things all the time. Like I keep the law really well. Why are you dining with these really, 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 really bad people? I'm offended at that. And the reason they're offended is because they think they're better. The only reason. If they didn't, they wouldn't be kind of caught off guard by that. We'll we'll come to more of that. But all of that together, what does that tell us then about the gospel? What's it say? It says that the gospel comes to all of us impartially. Has to, right? Not based on works or ethnicity or gender or class or age or even morality, even how moral we are. It's not based on that. It can't be. Look at Saul. It can't be. That's the whole point. He's choosing the worst of people. The Paul who says, I'm the, chief, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm like Captain Sinner. If there was a meeting of sinners, like a, like a conference of sinners, I'd be the one like planning the whole thing. I, I'd be the keynote speaker. I'd be the MC. I'd be, the, I'd be everything. I, I would lead it. I'm the chief of sinners. And Christ showed grace to me to show that it's not about what you do. It can't be. It doesn't fit. The idea of works saving you or your good deeds saving you is inconsistent with Acts 9. So the idea that that God is saving these types of people tells us so much uh, about ourselves and about the nature of God's love and, and what grace is. But it's based on the grace of his death and resurrection. And, and now I think not just that, but I think we're seeing here too, the grace of how Jesus presses into our heart by the Spirit unsuspectingly, undeservedly, and impartially the truth of these things. Like the wind. What starts to, I think, resolve the tension here, the offense that we feel, on some level we kind of should in one way. And I'll come, I'll come full circle here and say, but the gospel frees us from it. But I think on one level, it's almost okay to have it. Like, we're getting the gospel when we actually have some offense here. It means we understand. But what starts to resolve that tension or kind of ease that offense with the worst of people being shown kindness by God and forgiveness 
is when we realize that we have scales on our eyes too, that we're the snake, that we're actually the oppressor of God, that we haven't driven the nails into Jesus' arms, but then again, we kind of did. That's the whole point. Like when, when Peter preaches an Acts and makes such a big deal about how, like when he preaches, like you guys have, you, you were the ones that crucified Jesus, and yet God wanted that to happen so that through it you'd be saved. But before that, you are the oppressors, and not just of people, you're the oppressors of God. I'm the oppressor of God. We have all, whether, whether it's in this classic passive-aggressive kind of way or uh, kind of quiet way with just disbelief or a distrust or a, I don't need him kind of mentality or more active in how we um, seethingly kind of come at God with sins and with anger and so forth, like or anywhere in between, like all of us have, have oppressed. And, and I think once we start to realize that, that, that Saul becomes a mirror for us, Kind of like uh, David and Nathan, remember that story in the book of 2 Samuel where Nathan the prophet is trying to call out David and he brings this story to David saying, yeah, there, there's, this, there's this person that stole a sheep and all that and it was this, this baby sheep, this one sheep of this poor individual and, and this rich person with all these sheep, like he had everything, he wanted that one sheep and so he came and took the sheep of this one poor person and, and, Nathan, and, and Nathan's saying this and David is just like, his face is turning beet red, he's so angry that someone like this existed in his kingdom. You guys remember this, if you've read this before? And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. Like, you're the man in the story. You're the one who's, the one that you're angry over now, that you can't believe exists in your kingdom. I'm actually talking about you. That moment right there is a hermeneutic for understanding the Bible. That's a hermeneutic. That's an interpretational methodology for understanding, reading every bad person in the Bible, we should have a you are the man, I am the man moment when we read those things. That is the point. Nathan's telling us how to read the Bible right there. And this is, this is, no, this is no exception. Saul is us. We are the man. And so when we understand that, it, it disarms us. You know, like, like Jesus is, um, and back to that oppressor victim stuff for a minute, like, Though Jesus clearly cares for the victim, clearly, wonderfully, beautifully he does this in his, in his pre-cross ministry, he also doesn't take up the picketing signs of one side of a particular social or political agenda. He doesn't do that. But rather walks down the center and says to both sides yelling at each other, you both need me. Let's, come, let's go and have dinner together and talk about the kingdom of God. Then follow me to Calvary and gaze at my bloody body and believe in me and you will be saved. All of you, you oppressors, you victims, and you sinners alike, all of you, if you believe on me, will be saved. I love you all. See, once we realize that he's that kind of savior and not one just to kind of come alongside your agendas, socially or otherwise, just to kind of affirm you in that, but he calls everyone away, good and bad people, He's calling to himself. Even if we argue that one side of an issue is more ethically right, that's fine. But for Jesus, it, he didn't come into the world to just say that one side is right. He said to good people, you need me. It's like that song. It's not enough to right all wrongs. It's not enough to care socially about certain agendas. It's not enough to have political persuasions that you think are best for this country. It's not enough to right all wrongs and to be good. It's not enough. We could fill our shoes with blood, walking in the earth, being a good person. It's not enough. 
Jesus came in and said, everyone needs me, the best and the worst. And that's where things got offensive. Like, it, it, he already was for so many other reasons, but that's where things were tripped people up, especially people who thought they were good. And it's interesting when you look at Ananias here, he's a helpful example of how to think rightly about these things. Because with Ananias, the guy that laid hands on Saul, who was a Christian in Damascus, we see a lot of humility here and a lot of maturity. We don't know a lot about him. He's maybe a bit afraid of Saul here, as you might expect. He says that, actually. This is the guy that got permission to come and, and, and kill us. In fact, he, he's a disciple in Damascus, which means he was literally one of the guys that Saul was going to either kill or imprison or rip away some of his family members from. So it's like for him to say, now, Jesus, you're showing kindness to this guy? But what's interesting with Ananias is he doesn't get upset at Jesus about this, right? He rightly says, I'm kind of afraid, but he doesn't say, Jesus, bad choice, right? He doesn't say, Jesus, how dare you? How dare you forgive this oppressor, this oppressor of people? He doesn't say that. Why is that? What happened to his heart and mind? What kind of person was he? As a Christian man, what does this tell us? And I think what it tells us is he knew that he, Ananias, didn't deserve salvation either. He knew that he was not better than Saul. And so how could he refuse another just like him, especially if God called him one of his sons? And so he, Ananias, is able to call his enemy his brother. Isn't that fantastic? The gospel is the only thing that can do that. You can look at your enemy and say, you're like a sibling now, and we're family. We're a brother, we're brothers and sisters. We have the same father who's looked at both of us and said, you're mine. Now you're not a snake anymore or, son, or a brood of the devil. Now you're my brood. Now you're my children. I love you. So let's get along. See, that's what the gospel does. It's the only thing that, that, that can change Ananias' mind and heart to be able to say this and not get upset at Jesus. This, this is a man who is wrecked by grace. Wrecked, in a good way wrecked. Ruined, in a good way ruined, by the grace of God. He's been completely floored because he knows that he's been saved completely based off of God saying, it's not about Ananias, it's about my love for him. It's not about his works. All right, then third, uh, the third angle, Jesus' death, death and resurrection on repeat. It's a phrase I've been using in this series because we keep seeing it talked about and preached, but also shown. And so the question here, that kind of sub-question, is where is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Or where is the death and resurrection of Jesus itself in this passage in Acts 9? Because you might have thought this when we were reading or, or talking up to this point that you don't see it talked about. And the way that Jesus even appears to this guy, it's not kind of like textbook evangelism. It's just like, why are you persecuting me? Um, you're saved. You know, like it's just kind of this, you skipped all the, the pertinent information, you know, but it's like, it's Jesus. So <laughs> the, uh, but there's still a question, like where is the gospel in it? Where's the death and resurrection of Christ? And on what basis is Jesus able to, reveal himself to Saul like this? Based off of what? On what basis can he be this forgiving if he's ultimately 
an evil hater, which is a good thing for God to be, an evil hater as well, and a just God, on what basis can he appear in this forgiving, gracious manner to a murderer of his own people? And so I think we see this on two levels. And so to answer that question, we really kind of ask this one. Well, the, the gospel is the answer, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's cool. In this passage, we actually do see it. Like, it doesn't have to be here because it could be elsewhere in the Bible. It's clearly elsewhere in Acts, and so it could be inferred. But we actually do see it here. And it's subtle. It's kind of hidden. Sometimes you see it in, in hidden places as well that kind of surprise you if you really look for it. But we see the gospel in, in two ways. First, strangely... It's in Saul himself and what happened to him. All right, so what I mean by this is in Saul's conversion experience itself, we see figuratively the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in Saul, we we see a guy who figuratively dies or falls to the ground, is blind for particularly three days and nights, like Jesus was in the tomb for that amount of time, and then rises, which is a key Lucan word, or a word that Luke likes to use to refer to the resurrection all throughout Acts, and, and Luke as well, but all throughout Acts, he has been. But he rises from the ground, just like Jesus rose from the earth or the, gro- or the ground himself before this, when he resurrected, and when his body is mended. Bede, who is a theologian and early church father from the 6th century, Uh, He says, um, as a commentator on this passage, since he had not believed that the Lord had, speaking of Saul, he had not believed that the Lord had conquered death by rising on the third day, he was now taught by his own experience. So you see what he's saying there? Since Saul didn't believe that Jesus died and rose again, one of the things Jesus is doing is saying, I will show you by your own experience the truth of the matter of the gospel. I will have you fall to the ground. I will have you be blind for three days and three nights, key time frame. And I will have you rise up again as you're being healed and your body is mended. So that now the gospel that you will eventually preach, which will be that Jesus did all those things, is something you yourself will kind of personally experience. It's almost like this irony or something here, that the guy who was vehemently rejecting people who believe this and killing people for believing it and saying it's a lie, it's from the pit of hell, is now kind of going through what Jesus did for him. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, it's also in Jesus' interruption of Saul. Saving the people of the way. The way is what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity. So saving the people of the way, the Christians in, in Damascus. And so this is the more obvious one, but what we're literally seeing here is a threat coming towards people. So Saul is the threat moving towards the Christians in Damascus. Then we're seeing the people of the way, Christians over here. We're seeing Jesus literally come in between and stop the threat from getting all the way to the people. I mean, what does that sound like? Is that the gospel or what? Jesus stops threats. He interrupts threats. He protects by taking the brunt on himself. So he's literally a go-between uh, between the people of the way and Saul. He's, he, go, he goes in between a threat and his people. And not just in between, but as someone who is being persecuted. So, so again, we have Saul the threat, we have a persecuted Jesus, and we have people on the other side who are being spared. You guys see that? A threat, a persecuted, suffering, crucified Jesus, and people on the other side who were spared. 
I mean, it's almost like God wants us to see this over and over and over again, right? It's in every passage of the Bible, all throughout Acts. And this is the basis on which he's able to appear in a forgiving way towards a, a sinner. Acts 9, 2 to 3, I forgot about this, but I'll, I'll read this. Uh, this is a paraphrase of these two verses with gospel words. This is, kind of what's, this is basically what's happening here. Sin and death and the devil were on their way to Damascus to imprison and bind up sinners like us. But suddenly Jesus appeared, stood in their way, took the brunt of their attack, blinded them, and prevented them from taking one more step closer to us. And and so again, to tie all this together, it's because of that gospel, the event of that act of salvation, that Jesus appears to Saul in the way that he does. To answer the question from before, on what basis can he forgive? It's because of this. And we see it in the passage, narratively. It's not spoken clearly, but we see it. The gospel means threat diversion. The gospel means Jesus dies for us and takes, absorbs all the attack by being crucified. He's, he's literally the one that jumps in, in front of the bullet and takes it for us. But it's much worse than a bullet. It's on that basis we're saved. Everything in Acts 9 is a shadow and an outcome of this. So it's not actually enough just to say Jesus saves us by grace, even though it kind of is, and that's true. Or to say Jesus saves us undeservingly, even though that is kind of enough, and and it's very, very beautifully true. Or to say Jesus saves us unsuspectingly. What we have to say is Jesus saves us in all those ways when he dies for us on the cross. When he thwarts our sins there, and then when he rose again three days later. So that everything else in Acts 9 and in the Bible, all the other graces, all the other ways of God working in a forgiving, kind way towards sinners, they happen in the shadow of the glorious cross. And that's why Jesus' death here is hidden narratively in the simple act of Jesus appearing to Saul on the road and the simple act of Saul going blind for three days and three nights before his body is mended. The gospel is hidden in these actions so that we're linking that, we're seeing it, it's in the shadow of it and what those things point to that Christ can have this kind of posture in him and also to us. All right, here's how I want to end today and leave you guys with this and myself. This is, um, there's so much again here to mull over, but um, one thing to do and one thing to believe. We'll, we'll start with the do. And that is, let the gospel disarm you and make you less angry at other Christians. I'm speaking to Christians here for a second, but it could apply to anybody. But let the gospel freshly disarm you and make you less angry at other Christians or just to get along with them. Uh, in other words, follow Ananias' example. He is a fantastic He's a Christ figure in some ways, and we'll talk about that in a sec here, but he's also a picture of a Christian man who gets grace. If there's someone to look at and say, I want to be more like this person, look at Ananias. He's the the unnamed Christian we never hear from again. He gets this kind of strange call, you know, one night where Jesus says, go and lay your hands on this guy. And he's like, what? And we never hear a thing from him again. But he's the guy who gets grace. He understands grace. He understands in a humble manner 
he doesn't deserve anything, but he's been given so much. So he's able to get along with his enemy and call him brother. So when the Bible says things like to Christians, let us love one another, love the church, love other Christians, when it says that, it's not just saying do this because it's a good ethical thing to do, though it is. It's saying this so we would actually understand the gospel better through it. It's saying this for our gospel benefit because when we love other Christians, some of whom we might consider enemies or people that we don't like that much, people who have hurt us but now they're saved or whatever the case might be, when we love people and have unity with them and get along with them, we're actually simultaneously experiencing and understanding grace at the same time. That's why I think that this is commanded for Christians. Not do this perfectly and then you will live, because no one does. We're saved by grace alone. But when we can experience grace through the love and brotherhood and sisterhood of people that we otherwise wouldn't get along with, we're actually reliving out the Saul-Ananias strange, unsuspecting, improbable friendship that should never have happened. But in Christ, it does. In Christ, it's possible. There's no other way to call an enemy a brother except if you get outside yourself and your experiences and you both believe in something bigger than yourselves and your pasts and what happened to you and your former beliefs. That's the only way to have unity. Get outside yourselves and focus on something that you both agree on that's outside of both of your personalities or, again, pasts or sins or whatevers. That's the only way to do it. And so that's why I think this, this is here. To love others is to consider them just like us. To fight is to consider someone beneath you, but to love is to consider them just like us, even the really bad ones, because actually we're just as bad as they are. Okay, so work hard at this. This is, this is a noble thing to work hard at with your church. Love other Christians well at Hiawatha. Sacrifice for them. Seek unity with them and peace with them and understand the gospel well through that. The second thing, well, the thing to believe in, the first thing is what to do. This is the better thing, though, what to believe in. We've been saying this, but I'll, I'll close with this. Believe that this type of Savior that we're seeing today, this type of Savior also came to your rescue. And maybe you feel today crushed or separated from God or lost or shamed or hopeless. We need a Jesus who interrupts bad things like this, who comes down uninvited into our lives and says, here I am, I love you. See, if we have this kind of Savior, nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. Like, there's no divide that can't be crossed, no chasm that can't be fixed, no mountain that can't be climbed. If this is the type of Savior we have, it, it emboldens our prayers. It makes us confident in his character. Not in what we have to bring to him, but in the God who comes uninvited into our lives, uninvited into our hearts. And so as Christians, we should talk less about inviting Jesus into our heart and just declare that he broke in when we weren't inviting him. Do that more. Talk less about inviting Jesus in. Even though it might feel like that's how you converted, that's fine. Uh, but talk less about that and more about this is Saul's story is my story. Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Are we prepared to answer people when they ask us this? What language we use is very important. 
Did you receive him or did he break in when you were on your way to do something really bad? That might be, in fact, probably is the thing that someone who's not a Christian yet in your life needs to hear to understand grace. You didn't invite him in. You know, you're not that good. (laughs) I'm not that good. You're not that wise. I'm not that wise. You're not that with it. You know, so anyway, if there's one thing to believe in, it's this type of Savior came to rescue us. We are the people of the way here. We are Saul, in both cases, not doing anything whatsoever to save ourselves or, or deserve salvation. And so this is, this is, and this is for those of you especially who are not Christians yet, but for all of us, I need this again. But if we let the hands of Jesus be laid on us, kind of like Ananias' on Saul, through his death and resurrection, scales will fall off of our soul and our eyes and our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And we will be changed from a snake or a dragon into a son and a daughter of God by grace. That's the story of the Bible. Not by our good works, but by his love. But the descaling only comes from the hands of Jesus. Not by the hands of other religions or our hands or the hands of our good works, but only by the hands of Jesus that were nailed to a cross for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thanks for the grace of the gospel in it, both explicitly and implicitly. Um, God, help us to believe this is true. Help us to have softened hearts to believe that this happened, and it happened for our benefit. It happened to give you honor and glory and fame. It happens like Paul's name means small. It happens to kind of uh, remind us that we are small and, and humble and a speck in a sense, and yet we're loved deeply by a God who became a speck for us. He became a human. He condescended and lowered himself to become into this world to die for us. God, help us to see the truth of grace and the truth of the gospel in this passage and, and to remember it, to mull over it, to find our identity in it, to know who we are, and to allow us to get outside of ourselves. The truth of this passage, man, this will really allow us to get outside of ourselves more than almost anything. Uh, This will allow us to love people and to ask questions more of people in conversation and to not uh, uh, self-publish and promote, um, but all those things and more, but instead to put you and other people uh, on the platform before us and uh, just to think less of ourselves. So, in any case, pray for that, and we just pray more so, though, for belief. Help our, help our church to be a place of love and, and unity, but more so belief. We believe in Jesus and his love for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Jesus, for being persecuted unto death for us. In your name we pray. Amen.